I wanted to put a little note at the top of the show since we recorded before this happened, but Suzette Hayden Elgin, who uh, you guys will know as the creator of Ladon, uh, died on January 27th. So I will link to an article that discusses her life, uh, and uh, you guys can take a look at that. Uh, thank you, and on with the show. Vundurish di Roturad Oskakma, Shedotorad la Roturad dish Oskedi Sengurish Nautish Fisavaja. Welcome to Clan Langer, the podcast by constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And uh, before we get into today's show, uh, we have a couple of quick announcements. One is, uh, both of them are pretty pretty awesome things, uh, I think. Uh, first is, we are starting a Patreon. Uh, so, if you don't know, Patreon is, um, is a crowdfunding service where... Uh, we have it set up so you donate monthly, and you do- donate just like small amounts to support uh, people creating things like this podcast. Or uh, you know, there's also uh, songwriters and, and all kinds of uh, creative people on there. Um, we will link to the Patreon page in the show notes. It should be launching on the same day that this episode go- goes out, and I think you. I think if I did things right, if you go to patreon.com slash conlanger, you should get to it. But I want to say the podcast is always going to be available for free to anybody. We're not changing that thing, that, but it's sort of a voluntary, if you want to support the show, we'll use that money in order to make the show better. I have been eyeing for a long time, you know, some equipment that could improve our uh, sound quality, improving the the site. Uh, it could also give us a little more freedom to do more content. So uh, that's that's what that's for. And I'll I'll link to that. There will be a video on there that explains some things. And William, if you have anything to say on that, nope, no, okay. And the other thing, William, I think you will have something to say with it because. The video game that you developed a conlang for is out. Yay. Yes, Grey Goo, real-time strategy. Um, I did the alien language for the aliens they call the Beta in the game. Their own name for themselves is Mora. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was cool to finally see that in action and getting out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw you linked to somebody's Let's Play of it that showed the the whole opening cinematic, and it's all them speaking in that language. I, I guess, like, right after that cinematic, you had the alien speaking in English. So right, I guess the it's... idea was that, you know, this was some sort of historical record, and they give some stuff on the screen saying, ooh, we're translating now. <laughs> um, yeah, And it yeah. goes into... So you see the the language used a little bit more later in the game, Mm-hmm. Um, both in the game and in um, later cinematics. There's one hilarious cinematic with, with a, a super smart robot who is communicating with one of the aliens in the language. They don't give subtitles. 
because he's just telling another human what the guy has said. Mm-hmm. But it's very loose, so I enjoyed that that they didn't bother to subtitle that. <laughs> huh. That's cool. Yeah, it was fun. Um all right. That's awesome things. And uh we'll uh I'll link to your post about that uh as well. It looks like a cool game. Um so we'll see about how uh it's nice to see Video games also getting in on the, the con sure. There have been a few moves in this direction in the past, none mm-hmm. particularly widely known. I mean, the one people most know is Skyrim, and that's mostly a code for English, really. Yeah, that's not really a con line. Um, so that stuff's uh, awesome and interesting. And what's also awesome and, is, and interesting is our topic for today, which is auxiliary verb constructions. Now, um, William, you've been, you've done a lot of, been doing a lot of reading on this in general. And, uh, we're focused, we're working from a lot of work that's been done by a guy named Gregory Anderson. Yes. Who writes a lot about, um, auxiliary verb constructions. So, um, voluminously about auxiliary verb constructions. Yeah. Pretty much all of the stuff that we're going to talk about is from his work. Um, but, it's a very interesting topic, and uh, William, why don't you start out? So, I accidentally ran across his um, big, huge paper on auxiliary verb constructions in African languages, which mm-hmm. is available freely online. It's 250 pages full of amazing information. Mm-hmm. So, every conlanger should go grab that and spend a few weeks reading it. Um, and that got me thinking about things a little bit more. There's a lot more variation here than you might think. Most of us are familiar with European languages. You know, you have a helping verb and an infinitive, or helping verb and a participle, and that's about it. But there is a great deal that can be done with different kinds of just how you construct them. Mm -hmm. And a lot more meanings are available than you might think. They do more than just tense and aspect, although that is still their their primary function in most of the world's languages. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I personally have just been trying to uh, pay more attention to auxiliary verb constructions in general in making my own languages. Um, he has his gigantic book from Oxford, the Oxford Linguistics Series, these sort of red books. In looking at it, it doesn't seem like there's anything in it that doesn't have an example in the gigantic African language paper and vice versa. So... Even though the paper that's available for free focuses on African languages, the first part, especially when explaining things and his sort of theoretical outline or outlook, Mm. it all applies generally. So I don't think there's any worry that there's anything in the giant African language paper that would not apply generally to languages all over the planet. And we have, we have that. And I also found a much shorter paper of his that, um, that's focused on Turkic languages, particularly this Al-Khaisan <coughs> Turkic, but also talks a lot about Old Turkic and some other Right, things. and there's some very interesting auxiliary patterns in the the Turkic family, so it'll be, yeah, interesting to talk about those in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, as always, there are one or two ideas he has that, you know, some people might disagree with how he's analyzing things, um, especially the lexically-headed constructions, which we'll be seeing in a few minutes. Um, some people don't actually think are auxiliary verb constructions, but we'll just forget that and um, 
pretend that it is. There's always going to be that. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, 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 we're mostly considered with the facts and the examples. Right. Not so much with the theory right. for this show. So right. that's fine. Um, yes. Um, and through the course of the rest of today, I'm going to be talking about headedness, like auxiliary headed and lexically headed and so on and so forth. And we're just going to punt on the whole question of headedness and simply say that what I, when I'm saying headedness, I refer, I'm referring to where the fullest marking of person, tense, as, aspect, mood, all of that stuff is happening. So yeah. when I say something is auxiliary headed, I'm meaning most of the marking is happening on the auxiliary. If I'm saying le- lexically headed, I mean most of the marking is happening on the lexical verb. And there are three other possibilities we'll be getting to shortly. So that's what I mean. Um, yeah. For headedness. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's useful because if you, if you try to get technical on, on headedness, it always ends up depending on what, what theory you subscribe to. So just, right. I'm just, get, uh, yes. Yeah. As, just, as you uh, like to say, George, there are rabbit holes. Yes. <laughs> which we want to avoid. Um, so, and then another piece of terminology I'm going to use, obviously the auxiliary verb is always, is the auxiliary and the lexical verb is the one that carries the semantics. So the phrase I have slept is an instance of sleeping, not of mm-hmm. having. Okay. Have is the auxiliary, sleep is the lexical verb. Right. So the one of the main things that that uh, sort of ends up distinguishing the auxiliary verbs is that they're sort of semantically bleached in this way. They right. have some they carry some grammatical meanings that don't carry much in the way of lexical meanings, usually. Correct. And, and that's part of the fun that happens. You get this sort of development of grammaticalization where you have something that is a fully realized lexical verb, and then they decide, hey, we're going to use this as an auxiliary. And then over time, it may lose its original lexical sense and may, in fact, lose its existence altogether and get swallowed into um, a verb morphology. Right. Uh, well, I mean... I mean, a good have, example. Have, that happens to have a lot. Um, yeah. And there are a lot of, there, you'll, you will probably be talking about the, uh, the different lexical verbs that tend to get turned into auxiliaries sure. in a little bit. But yeah. I mean, think about any of the romance languages where, I believe this is true, most of them, the future comes from an infinitive plus some form of the verb to have. Yeah, that's how it is in Spanish. <coughs> so the verb to have still exists, possibly, out in the language, yeah, but a highly reduced form has been sucked into yeah. um, the, the future tense of the verb or and plenty of other tenses. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're talking about there, that process of grammaticalization. And that's another good reason to talk about these. If you're doing historical conlanging, this is a great way to develop, you know, those verb charts that conlangers love so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They can end up being sort of glommed on to the verb somehow. Exactly. Exactly. And then you can have, you can or, or not have the, the original lexical verb somewhere else. And, uh, you can, that way you'll have the shadow of the previous historical process. There. Right. Right. So in terms of meaning, most auxiliary verb constructions are used for tense, aspect, and mood. Those are all very common mm-hmm. uses. Um, voice, 
jiggery-pokery, such as the passive in English, is another big function that happens all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, but other sorts of things can come up, too. Um, what we would, in English, consider simple, basic adverbial constructions um, sometimes use um, auxiliary verb constructions, like something as simple as again, or extremely, or a lot, various kinds of senses mm-hmm. that English and most European languages use adverbs for might turn out to be um, an auxiliary verb construction in some languages. And there are all sorts of politeness and honorific forms, um, which we're definitely going to see in the Turkic situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and another fun thing that the Turkic languages do is they have benefactive and auto-benefactives. So benefactive is when you're doing something for someone else. Mm-hmm. So it's not surprising that auxiliary verb constructions sometimes form the historical basis for the benefactive applicative. Mm-hmm. Where you take a verb and you add another argument to indicate who you've done something for. I forget how long it's been since we've talked about applicatives, but I know we have had an episode about those. Uh, well, we were going to have one in the future. I don't know if we oh. have about it. <laughs> I don't know if we've had, we've talked about, we've probably talked about applicatives in our voice episode oh, sure. a bit or, yeah. or in, or in, in any case, other episodes. Applicatives are just when the verb is marked to say, hey, there's another argument somewhere here. Um, and benefactives to say that you're doing something for someone is a really common one. And then the Turkic languages have really interesting auto-benefactives, which mean you have performed the action for your own self. That's interesting. Um, this meaning comes up in different ways in different languages. Um, Somali and ancient Greek both use the middle voice to indicate this. Um, and what's most interesting <coughs> in the Turkic case is in some languages, certain lexical verbs will basically always appear with an auto-benefactive construction, uh-huh. such as find in some of the languages. And that sort of makes sense. Right. So Anderson recognizes five kinds of auxiliary verb constructions. There's the auxiliary-headed, the double-headed, the split-headed, the split-slash-double-headed, and the lexically-headed. <laughs> um, and the last one, the lexically-headed, is the most controversial category, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um and, naturally, any given language can have multiple types. Right, right. This is not, like, a, a rigid choice you have to make. Right. And, in fact, when we get to talking about, I don't know if, if this goes into the, goes with the um, the African languages, but with the, the Turkic languages, there are languages that have several different types of uh, in. Not necessarily in this taxonomy, but also in terms of more of the details of how they work. Right. Right. Your auxiliary headed may have three different ways to form the lexical portion. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So a quick note about word order. There are always exceptions, of course, but in general, the order of auxiliary and lexical verb matches the order of verb and object if you have a dominant word order. Right. That makes so, sense. So if you have... A VO language, it's usually the auxiliary and the lexical verb. Right. If you have an OV language, it's usually the lexical verb and then the auxiliary. Yes. Um, but of course, German is a little weird in regard to where its auxiliaries and its lexical verbs in particular end up. Yes, well. <clears throat> All right. So let's start down the list. Auxiliary-headed is the form that most of us would recognize as the standard auxiliary verb construction. And it is, of course, the most common in the world. 
Um, basically, the auxiliary verb takes all of the relevant required marking for the verb. Subject, mm -hmm. tense. If your language has polypersonal agreement, it will take the object. And the lexical verb is in some less finite form. Infinitives, participles, gerunds, in the mm -hmm. Turkic languages, converbs, subjunctives. It's basically some kind of dependent form, um, mm -hmm. not fully realized as an independent verb is. Right. Um, the, uh, the pattern in romance languages where participle agrees with the object or the subject is pretty unusual and doesn't really occur much outside of that language area. You can right. still have participles as um, the lexical part of these, but it, it won't necessarily agree in the way that you expect if you've only you know studied French and Latin. Uh, Spanish I think and so uh, I think Russian maybe may have had that at some point, but not not very many languages do it. Right. Um, and because that's the most common form and really easy, I'm just, there's not much else to say about it. Um, the average conlanger who's not made a special study of, like, of auxiliary verb constructions is going to pick the auxiliary headed form. Right. I think that's a good bet. It's, it's, it's going to, it, it's, it often sort of seems the most logical because we're familiar with languages right. that do it that right. way. And it's like, okay, we, we're just moving all this stuff over to the auxiliary that kind of thing right. but um there's more so the next kind is the double-headed auxiliary verb construction and in these both the auxiliary and the lexical verb are marked for subject and object if the verb if the language has polypersonal agreement and sometimes other categories like tense aspect mood and this is a pretty common pattern. Pure doubled is not especially common, um, but we'll get to the, the more common situation in a bit. Um, and the thing that's doubled might include polarity. So you might get um, the auxiliary and lexical verb are both marked for negation if the sentence is negated while, right. while the auxiliary um, carries all of the rest of the stuff. So when, when I say that this has double-headed, I typically mean, and Anderson typically means, that the subject is marked on both verbs. It yeah, does not mean that they are both fully inflected. They might be. That certainly can happen. Um, but the lexical verb typically will have reduced marking. Mm -hmm. um, there is one language or a small number of languages that have double object marking. Okay. Which is hilarious, uh, but is actually tested but rare. Uh, double object marking. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Uh, some languages that are sensitive to number more than person on the verb may double the number on both the auxiliary and the lexical verb. Um, uh -huh. But the auxiliary takes everything else. Okay. Um, and as I said a bit, full-on, complete, fully finite um, verb forms do happen. Okay. So you can get you can get a fully fully inflected yeah. A fully inflected verb, so along of, with an, an inflected auxiliary. Right. So, uh, so instead of "I would want to go," it would be "I would want." I would go. Uh huh. It's sort of a way of faking that in English. Mm hmm. In terms of subject marking, it may not be an inflection. You may just simply repeat the subject, like I just did in English. Right. English doesn't conjugate very much. Yeah. Um. Right. So. While it can be hard to distinguish these double-marked 
constructions from serial verb constructions. Um, the uh, lexical verb might still have some sort of dependent marking. It might be a subjunctive. It might have some sort of other morphology to indicate that it is a dependent verb rather than an independent verb. Right. Um, just since serial verb constructions are sort of coming up, We'll, we'll want to sort of define those a little bit as well. Serial verb constructions are not like um, auxiliary verb constructions exactly. There's it's a little bit of fuzzy um, distinction between the two, but a serial verb construction, you can have two fully lexical verbs, one after the other. Yep. And usually they share like the same subject and object, but not always. I'm mostly familiar with this in Chinese where... They can have the same, the same object or two different objects often. So that's, uh, in that case, you don't have one that's, um, sort of semantically bleached. You get, right. get They're like, both, yes. yes, you get, you get two full verbs in the sentence. Like you, you say, he take knife, cut bread. He took the knife to cut, cut the bread, stuff like that. In English, we just say he cut the bread with a knife. Right, right. We have to, we can't really put two verbs in succession like that. Um, right. In some languages, your auxiliary-headed construction in double patterns might vary across dialect or even freely within a single dialect, so that, you know, some kind of future marking, some users might use auxiliary-headed, some might use double-headed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that becomes an interesting way to vary dialects in your conlangs. On pages 37 and 38 of the African Languages document, he talks about a situation where the auxiliary is marked as dependent, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, which is a little bit weird. That's uh, yes. that's interesting, <laughs> but that's that's not not a common thing, right? Um, and I was going to say that the pure doubled isn't especially common. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to splits in a bit. Um, and I'm just going to repeat, doubled does not mean that the verb forms are identical. The lexical right. form may still have either, will still have the duplications that you expect, but there may be some sort of dependency marking or less marking. Um, the point is some categories are doubled between mm-hmm. the auxiliary and the lexical verb. Right. So next we come to my favorite kind, which is the split-headed. Ooh. Okay. Yes. Some of the things we expect on a verb go on the auxiliary, and some go on the lexical verb. This is something I saw a lot of in his paper on Turkic languages. There were a lot of cases where you'd have tense on the lexical verb or an aspect on the auxiliary verb or vice versa. Right. So, so one pattern, which is reasonably common in the world's languages is for the subject to be marked on the auxiliary and the direct object to be marked on the lexical verb. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and if you look at pages 41 and 42 um, of the African paper, he gives some variations. Mm-hmm. Um, another pretty common pattern is for the auxiliary verb to be marked for subject and all the necessary tense, aspect, and mood stuff, and for negation to be attached to the lexical verb somehow. Mm, that's an interesting one. Yes. Um, a pretty uncommon uh, split is for tense, aspect, and mood to be on the auxiliary 
and subject and object marking to go on the lexical verb. Huh, okay. <laughs> um, and if you look at I, these papers, he gives numerous patterns. Right, right. Lots of possibilities. In general, tense aspect and mood tends not to get split apart and moved across the auxiliary and the lexical verb, but it can happen. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about. There's lots of examples of that in the in the Turkic languages right. article, but you know that doesn't mean it. Just means it happens a bit in that particular family. Yes. So when I first read that paper, this was the thing that excited me most because it had never ever occurred to me to do auxiliary verbs this way. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like the sort of thing that would appeal to people who like to play with different systems. It's it's a lot like things like split ergative systems and stuff where you like you you are you have this freedom to pick out what things you're going to put in what category or what things you're going to put where. Right. Right. So the fourth kind of auxiliary verb constructions he recognized is the split slash doubled. Mm-hmm. This means what you think it does. Some um, things are marked on both verbs and some are marked individually. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, the subject is the most frequently doubled element. Well, okay. So you might get subject marking on the auxiliary, subject marking on the lexical verb, but also object marking on the lexical verb. Okay. Yeah. Um, another pattern is um, auxiliary verb with tense aspect mood and subject, and then the lexical verb gets the subject doubling and some sort of dependent marking um, that's not as rich as the full tense aspect mood system of an independent verb. Mm-hmm. Um, and pages 42 through 49 give a bunch of other sub-patterns and minor patterns that he's run across in his data. Mm-hmm. So split and split-doubled are the two that are most unlike anything I've seen in very many natural languages, frankly. Um, I have seen doubled in um, Egyptian Arabic before. Um, so I hope to see more conlangs with split and split-doubled systems. Yes. Those, <laughs> those seem like the, the, the most interesting things to play with. Right. I did a split-doubled system in the language I created for um, uh, Laxember. Oh, okay. Um, so that was one of the ideas I wanted to play with when I concocted a new language for um, Lexember. All right. So the fifth and final kind of auxiliary verb construction is the lexically headed verb construction. Here, the lexical verb has all of the marking for subject object, tense aspect mood. Um, and the auxiliary looks like a particle, like a tense particle or a mood particle. Which is probably why this is very controversial, theoretically. Right. Sometimes it can be a little tricky to see that this is really an auxiliary verb construction and not genuinely a particle, whatever that means. The problem, of course, is that particle is the dumping ground for everything we don't understand. Right. Right. Um, But sometimes there are clear indications that that's what's going on, where you have the particle, but your lexical verb is still not a fully independent verb. It Mm -hmm. might be in some sort of dependent form. Um... You know, some uh, subjunctive or something else where you've got the particle plus some not quite normal verb form um, is the future. And that's usually the best proof that you're really dealing with the lexically headed verb construction. Mm-hmm. And it looks like these mostly evolve from doubled, double-headed verb constructions where all of the marking eventually wears away on the auxiliary. 
until you get something that looks like a particle. And sometimes the etymology is clear. You can s- still clearly see um, the original verb sense mm-hmm. um, and the relationship there is, is how that developed. Okay. You know, I, I, I was thinking about the, the lex-headed. For some reason, my mind goes to English modals, which that's like almost like just out of this because the modals have like very little marking or no marking. Sure. And then the verb also has no marking. So well, kind of, I mean, we still have to, I mean, the, the, we don't have inflectional marking the same way. The subject is, you know, still out there. Right. Of the modal. Uh huh. That's true. Yeah. I'm just talking purely on morphological terms. Sure. There. Uh, sure. So for the Gregu language, I actually did one lexically handed. Uh, normally in the past, I've always uh, avoided uh, tense and aspect particles because I thought they were a little unnatural. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As always, one should know better. Uh huh. Um, so yeah, I used, um, for the future, I used the future and the uh, contrafactual use the same. Oh, okay. Use a lexically headed construction for that, for those. That's nice. Yes. Um, and for some reason, he makes the note that in the African languages, lexically headed constructions tend to be preferred for future perfect or progressive senses. Okay. Um, I don't see, you know, how that, I mean, it's, it's an interesting thing to have us. I don't know why he would specifically call that out, but well, there are plenty of things that these can mean, and these seem whatever in his data to mostly be futures, perfects, and progressives. Yeah, I know it, would, it could lead somewhere, but that's getting into theory, maybe. Sure. Um. So let's talk semantics <laughs> a little bit. So a single verb might have multiple different kinds of uses in different auxiliary constructions. For example, English to be, um, use it with the present participle and you get a progressive. Use it with the past passive participle and you get a passive. Right. Um, and it still is usable as a verb all by itself. So this is a sort of pattern you expect to see in natural languages and provides interesting avenues for dialect differentiation if you're doing historical conlanging. Mm-hmm. Where something that was a little more flexible, two different languages decided, no, I'm only going to use to be for this sense in one dialect, and to be used in a completely different, well, not a, you know, a different construction, right, in a different dialect. The verb to be is pretty darn common for progressive and imperfective senses, um, as well as to be in, on, or at, right, so right. A, a locative. Some languages have special forms of locative to be. Um, right. That's, uh, or it might actually be a preposition. So like Irish English uses prepositions on verb, uh, charons, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, or even English. I'm a running. Oh, yeah. Sort of old thing. You know, to, to represent a, a progressive. Chinese has, has the weird thing of Zai is, um, could be, could be described as an auxiliary in like, He's reading. Right. And uh, is also a locative expression. It's, it's also like it's locative to be and it's the locative preposition. That's, right. that's a weird thing in Chinese where like you get like these verbs, which are also prepositions, which are also some sort of auxiliary thing. So. Right. Um, okay. Um, 
So if you go to page 51 and 52 of the African languages paper, there's a long list of um, sort of verbs, lexical verbs, and their most common auxiliary uses in the African languages. Everything in that list also applies to languages outside of Africa. It's just shorter. There are more senses in the big book, um, which are in, starts on page 369. Um, but in general, that's still a really, a really good list to start with. Right. So you can look at that and see. Okay. I see. So there's, there's, it's still a pretty, pretty long list. It's a pretty long list. It's yeah. a three page list in the, uh, in the book. A lot of these, a lot of these, uh, seem pretty obvious to me. They're like things that all already have pretty, like, weak lexical meanings, like be and do or make. Sure. Sure. Uh, but so, also other things. Also other things, like come, the, the, the basic sense of to come can be used in lots of different auxiliary senses. It can be a future. It can be mm-hmm. a pot- potential. It can be a perfect. It can mark the habitual. It can mark a passive. It can mark a consecutive, which is to means, and then I did this, and then I did this, and then I did this. It can mark a progressive, and it can mark the encoded aspect, like I got sick. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of different things that one little verb can do. Um, if you have a special verb meaning come from, it can be a proximal past, like I just did it. Um, and if you have a separate, a special come to, it can be like almost or to indicate that something was not accomplished. Yeah. Um, Oromo um, has a cute little thing where the verb remain marks a probable future when it's used as an, in, uh, an yeah. auxiliary. And there's um, sit can be progressive or... or Any the- of the verbs of posture are frequent auxiliaries and often for habitual or progressive senses. Yeah. Sit, stand, lie, That's, all of those. Yeah. Which is Which makes some sense. A lot of them... Are and kind uh, of allied with the locative bees. Yeah, they they often do become some sort of copula as well. So sure, sure. Um, keep can be continuative, continuative, progressive, present, durative. Those all those all make sense to me. Sure, those, and, and English has that. You know, keep on keeping on. Mm-hmm. Um, give can do a bunch of things. It could be an applicative, a causative, a perfect, an inceptive. <laughs> Um, to indicate that you allow something to happen, and one language it means deliberately. Oh, which is neat. Mm. It makes perfect sense in my brain, but it's yeah, it's an interesting little thing. Mm. You have uh, throw meaning perfect. Throw meaning uh, yes, throw used in a construction to the perfect, which I just thought was entertaining. <laughs> I don't know how common it is, but I thought it was neat. Um, and then finishing my portion of this talk, um. If you look at Appendix 8 in the African paper, starts on page 392, which gives you some idea of how giant this paper is and what an amazing resource it is. There is a giant list of every combination of subject, object, tense, aspect, mood, auxiliary, and lexical you could want, um, including some interesting historical developments and a bunch of things we didn't go into here. So if you're not sure if marking the subject on one part and the object and the mood on another part could happen, take a look through that list, because you'll probably find it. That's then, a great place, I think. Just to, to get look. some ideas and play with stuff. And it also gives, and I've yeah. not talked a whole lot about historical developments uh-huh. um, and refinements, but he gives a bunch of those examples in that list as well. Yeah, it's, this, this is really a nice thing to, to look at options. I, I'm always a fan of when you're doing conlanging, 
having like a list of options to go through for a given part of your conlang. Right. To figure things and out. And that's options aplenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, I'm just going to go over, uh, we mentioned Turkic, the Turkic languages stuff, uh, a bit. I found another paper by the same guy that's on, it's, it's, uh, in the title it says Altai, Altai, um, Sayan, um, or Cyan, uh, Turkic languages. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly now. Um, that goes into, uh, goes into a little bit about, um, the languages. And, um, I'll just talk about, we didn't talk, we, we, we sort of glossed over the, the variations, but, um, so as we said, like, the, the Turkic languages show a lot of different variations on what kind of special marking the, the, um, lexical verb gets. It can be a converb, which is, um, I don't know, William, maybe you can explain that. It's something that's sort of, uh, mostly peculiar, peculiar to Turkic and Mongolic languages, I think. And Manchu. Um, converbs are effectively adverb forms of verbs. Okay. So expressions like while he was going, he fell off the horse. The while he was going would be in the, you know, imperfective converb. Um, after he went, he fell mm-hmm. off the horse. That's the perfective. Um, a bunch of different senses. Uh, some of these languages, the converb is extremely weak in sense. It's very, very general. Um, and in others, it may have a very precise a temporal or logical sense. Um, so where English uses conjunctions for some things, some of these languages, lots of converbs, use con- these converb forms. All right. And they're so, typically very simply marked. They're not... Um, um, some of them imply strongly that the subject is the same in both parts, both the converb clause and the main clause. Others are a little bit more flexible. Um, but the point is the verb is not f- a fully marked um, finite verb. All right. So basically that's, that's one option that, that can occur in the, the Turkic languages because they have these converbs. Sometimes a lexical verb could be marked as a converb. Could also be a participle. Uh, can also be nominalized, which is interesting. It makes, you know, which is all an infinitive is really. Yeah. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Like historically, uh, nominalized form becomes part of this auxiliary verb construction. Uh, maybe originally as some sort of a transitive. Um, uh, it could be, we mentioned, you know, we, with, uh, you know, double systems or split systems, you know, you can have inflected verb forms. You can have it fully inflected. Um, and, uh, he also mentions some, uh, constructions that are nominal, like actual nouns. With uh, verb auxiliary, those look to me like they were sort of idioms. Uh, let me see if I can... Uh, so, like, he has an example. Um, my younger brother, KT, died, and the died is lacking with uh, with an auxiliary. And then... Uh, and there's... Uh, when he reflected, meditated... Uh, when he reflected or meditated, that's, uh, meditate is thought plus an auxiliary. So 
that that those look look more like idioms to me, but it is interesting that you could have like a noun with an auxiliary become that sort of thing. And that may be like shades of the historical source of the auxiliary. Yeah. Um, we talked about the different categories. We talked about the benefactives. We talked about um, honorifics and, and politeness. That's something that's in here um, where it's he's talking about honorif- honorifics also, you know, respect and self-deprecation sort of things. Uh he has um, an auxiliary that means order that's used honorifically. Uh, and there's another verb that's used sort of with respectful things. There's uh, a self-deprecation, deprecating construction. That's his term for it that we can, we can say I ventured that we can, that he translates as like venture to. It's like I, I tried to do something as a way of bringing yourself down. Oh, but the, sure. the, the interesting thing that we haven't mentioned that I thought was he mentioned that there are in like, um, it's, it's not apparently not very common cross linguistically, but apparently in old Turkic, there are these, um, he's calling them translocative and cislocative, but it's basically, it's, uh, Towards the speaker, away from the speaker. Sure. Expressed with an auxiliary. So they set off, uses one auxiliary, and we have, uh, what's it? the moon demon took his boy up to the moon, taking the boy, the, the take gets that same one, and let, let me find a, so and that's then, interesting because yeah. that's something you find in serial verb constructions as well, where cislocative and translocative are encoded by come and go. And yeah. It gets to be so frequent that these become little, little crushed bits of phonology that linger to indicate to the speaker and away from the speaker. Right, uh, right. Some of the, uh, oceanic languages have little things that look like particles that are probably the leftover verbs yeah. marking to the speaker and from the speaker as well. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And then the, the, for an example of the opposite, he said, like, he has like an example, the army set upon us. Uh, and that's using a different auxiliary that's meaning towards the speaker. Right. So that, that was just the, the highlights that I pulled out of that paper. So the, that gives people a few other ideas about, um, the, including the semantics of the actual, um, auxiliaries. Again, we said that the auxiliaries are semantically bleached. It doesn't mean they're completely semantically empty, but they lose a lot of their lexical meaning. Right. Um, so I think that's about all we really had. Um, I wanted to add one quick thing that I didn't write down, but should have. One thing we've really not talked about at all is the semantics of the lexical verb. Sometimes the event structure, things like telicity, might place constraints on what kind of auxiliary verb constructions a verb can occur in. All right. Now, it's, that's obvious for things like passives. Um, and transitive verbs cannot be passives, or at least not in English. Um, so it's worth thinking through that a little bit, too. I thought I could find a paper that talked about that in particular, but I've not been able to find it. <laughs> 
um, maybe at some point in the future. I'll... Uh, yeah, and the the Turkic the the Turkic paper talks a little bit about. I think these are auxiliaries that can change the. Some of the auxiliaries can change the like the telicity of it. Okay. Uh, he 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 refers to action sart, which is which is more than just telicity. It's telicity and duration, but um, a fancy German term for telicity. And stuff. Basically, yes. Um, it's a little bit more than that, but so yeah. good. It's worth paying attention to that because they're, they're they're obviously with any part of Kanlanging, you can dive deep into a rabbit hole of details, right? Um. But it's worth thinking about, at least briefly, even if you don't want to go bonkers with it. Yeah, so that's uh, a whole lot of stuff. I hope uh, people, you know, go and look at this. And both of these papers, I think, are freely available in yes. PDF form on the Internet. Um, and then them, read them, love them. And William has the big book. Uh, we can probably link to that on the Conlanger's Lending Library or something if they have it. Sure. Um so, uh, that's, it's all interesting stuff. And, uh, the thing I want to, want people to take away with is there's so many different options for you here. Just like, just, just, you know, once I looked at that appendix in the, in the African languages one, it's like, that's just bewildering how many <laughs> possibilities there are. So, you know, and, um, again, as we said near the beginning, uh, you don't necessarily have to choose what just one. A lot of these, um, uh, the Turkic paper at least shows a lot of cases where languages have multiple different um, auxiliaries that work somewhat differently. I'm sure the African languages paper has a lot of that sure. uh, kind of thing going sure. on too. So you can do you can do a lot of stuff with the. This is, this is just the thing with conlanging is you can always, you can always like find one like little tiny piece of the language that you can spend years on <laughs> because of the, the, the enormous amount of options that, that sure. are available. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, that is what we have for today. Um, next month, we are going to have um, uh, Christoph Grancier-Kovitz on again, and he's going to be on and talk about his conlang, Moten, which is, I think that's the only conlang he's worked on, but he's worked on it uh, a lot. A lot. Yes. And there's a lot to say about that, so um, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, uh, but with that, I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conlangery. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. All of those are conlangery. And if you would like to hear your conlang featured on the top of the show, you can look at our contribute page. It has the instructions for what you need to translate and how to send it to me. Conlangery's web space is provided by the Language Creation Society and our music is by Null Device. <laughs>